Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we offer resources to equip you and stories to inspire you on your adoption journey. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Hi, friends. Welcome to episode 148 of the Adoption Connection Podcast. We're so glad you're here with us today. Just a couple of weeks ago, in episode 146, we introduced you to Gray Lombard Ray, who has recently joined us at the Adoption Connection with a particular heart for serving dads, adoptive and foster dads. And today we're super excited to introduce you to Sarah Odisio, who is an adult adoptee, transracially adopted adoptee, who is going to be working with us serving adoptees, and in particular, teens and young adults right now. And Melissa had a great opportunity to sit down and talk with her. Yeah, I had a really great conversation with Sarah. It's always fun for me to connect with other adoptees who have similarities in our stories. Sarah has a graduate degree in social work and has been working in the post-adoption field since about 2018, supporting adoptive families. And her passion for that population has grown as she has personally engaged in her own adoption story in a deeper way. She lives with her husband, Jared, and their Chinese dwarf hamster in Pennsylvania. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Good. Okay. I am so excited about this for so many reasons. One, because I actually know you in real life. We've gotten to hang out too. We have a lot in common. You're an Asian adoptee and we both have a passion for really supporting families in their post-adoption space. And, you know, sometimes I'm interviewing folks who I don't know as well. So it's really fun to interview someone that I know. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So, but I don't know all of your story and obviously listeners don't know as well. So can you just start by telling folks just like a really brief intro of who you are and maybe when you first remember hearing or like kind of processing the fact that you were adopted? So I was adopted when I was a year old. Um, I was in an orphanage setting in China. Um, and I was, so I was born in 1996 and then adopted in 1997. My parents, they were from Pennsylvania. They flew all. So like, I guess some adoptions they're brought to the airport, um, in my family's case. Yeah. And they got, they came to China to get me, which I always think is cool because they tried to immerse themselves in those couple weeks while they were, um, picking me up, (laughs) but they, so I guess, and then I came back to Pennsylvania And I think there was never a question of whether I came from my mommy's belly, I guess. I know sometimes there's that phrase of tummy mommy versus mommy. Um, So that wasn't a question. And it must have been like a racial difference. Like it was very clear. Yeah, I think for me, though, the point where I knew I was different was as soon as I came back from China to the airport in America and met like, of course, the whole family was there. Extended family was waiting, waiting at the airport with sign, welcome home, baby girl, you know? And then my sister who was already adopted before me, she's from China also. And I think my mom noticed me looking at everyone and I was one. So I was very, I was pretty expressive even for a one-year-old. And she remembers me just for the first like couple months, wherever we went, just looking at people like, I know people can't see my face right now, but I just had this like blank, weird stare at people. And my mom really thinks I was just trying to process like, who are all these people with like light hair and like pointy noses? And I would only, and I would only feel comfortable with my sister who had a small flat nose, what we call it with um, Shauna, my sister. It sounds weird, but noses have always been like a fascinating thing for me, um, even since I was little. So I noticed those physical differences. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, another way when I was younger, when, I mean, very young, my sister and I watched Tarzan <laughs> growing up and I don't know if this was a right way for my mom to explain it or not, but we loved music. We loved 
Disney and singing. And so my mom would sing to us, you'll be in my heart. Yeah, that song. Yeah. And, <laughs> and she would compare their situation to ours and be like, um, even though we don't look alike, you're, you're in my heart always. And I'm your mom. So essentially she was calling herself the, the ape or the, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> the mama gorilla. And then Tarzan's like the, the little boy. Um, anyway, so she would use that song. That's yeah. Okay. So that brings up an interesting point because I think there's a lot of mixed feelings about this, maybe among adoptees, maybe, and families are probably wondering what the heck to do. It seems like every time we turn around, there's a kid's movie where there's some kind of adoption situation or a parent dies, you know, it's so prevalent. I don't think we really realize it until, you know, we're an adoptive family and we start noticing these things. And I don't remember being super sensitive to it one way or the other, but do you remember like, or even now as an adult, like, is it hard to watch media or movies that have an adoption theme in them or an abandonment situation? I wouldn't say for me, it's been super hard, but I, to- I agree with you in the fact that it's all, all around us. And like, I mean, almost, I feel like almost all Disney movies, there's some sort of parent passing away or um, yeah, abandonment, there's grief and loss in all of these child children's films. I know I was always very sensitive and I still am very sensitive to people's emotions And so movies were always hard for me to watch in general. I just, I would take, I know we're going to talk about the Enneagram later, but I think it it does have to do with my number. But anyway, I would take what someone was going through in a movie, even if it was like not a true story and I would make it my own feeling. So I, even before puberty or emotions or hormones, I would cry a lot with movies in any situation. If someone was in pain, hurting, I couldn't see it. I'd be like, ah, I don't want to see this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such an interesting point. And you brought up the Enneagram. And so I think that's really helpful because I think sometimes as adoptive families, especially if there's an adoption theme, it's easy to watch our kids be distressed about something and then automatically assume, oh, it must be triggering because of an adoption thing. And we were talking before we hit record about how important the Enneagram has been for both of us in terms of helping us better understand ourselves and our stories, especially as Mm -hmm. adoptees. And so I think it's important for parents to kind of know something about the way different types of personalities experience the world, process things, because you identify as a two on the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. And so twos as a whole adoptee or not kind of do feel everyone else's feelings. It's that's kind of like a hallmark two thing. And so that very (laughs) much, right. Like, you know, you crying at movies, you know, I'm not a two, so you you can clarify for this, but like for Mm -hmm. twos, I feel like it's not, it's not necessarily like a bad thing. Like twos, threes and fours on the Enneagram tend to be very, emotionally driven, very emotive. And for people like me who aren't driven that way, I feel the need to like fix people who are having big emotions. Like, oh, like, oh, you're so sad for that movie. Like maybe we shouldn't watch that anymore. Or maybe that was triggering or like, maybe that was a bad thing where it's like, you know, for twos, threes and fours, well, twos and fours, I think, especially that experience isn't it's not necessarily traumatic. It's just like mm-hmm. an emotive experience. Is that how? That, would no, you that's ex- that's exactly right. Because I would actually, I don't mind sitting in like deep sadness. I know that's more maybe characteristic of a four. Um, so I won't sit in it for long, like in those melancholy feelings. But I like, for instance, I won't feel exactly super close to someone unless maybe we can like pour our hearts out or have a good cry. And then I'm like, okay, they're my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, but um, but I do I, I definitely agree with that with the the emotions just being extra sensitive to them, but not it being but it not being necessarily a bad thing. It's just kind of yeah, how how I'm wired. And and so again with the whole um what you were saying, is it because they're adopted? A lot of times we'll just coin, oh, I do this because I'm adopted. Well, no, not quite, because all of the adoptees have their own experiences. And then on top of that, the layers of the Enneagram and their personality and their yeah, personality plus experience. It's 
yeah, that's different for everyone. So then, yeah, you can't compare all of the stories. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned having your sister and remembering even from an early age, how that was comforting, having someone who looked like you. Did you, was there a lot of diversity in your growing up? Did you feel like a sense of belonging or did you, did you kind of feel the sense that, you know, I look different than the majority of people I hang out with? So I, to answer your question, no, we didn't really grow up with a lot of diversity. We grew up, we were, um, my dad was a pastor. And so our biggest social settings, like most kids is like, um, at church, if they're in some sort of like faith-based community and then at school, those are like their two main social learning (laughs) situations. And in both of those, yeah, Sean and I were always the only Asians. There was one other girl at church that was, that was our good friend and she was adopted also. So we kind of tag teamed with her a lot. Um, and then we went to private Christian school growing up. So that again was that, yeah, we were really the only Asian, but I never saw it as a bad thing. I liked looking different. I was very observant and intuitive. So I would notice it right away. But the first time it actually bugged me was in first grade. And I guess that was, yeah, first grade, I'm young. Yeah. <laughs> young. Um, yeah. That's pretty early to experience something. But in first grade, there was a girl, she had blonde hair, blue eyes. And she told me, um, she was like, I'm Chinese too. And I'm, a, and I'm like, no, you're not. Like, I didn't know races <laughs> really like to know, like, no, you're Caucasian. Like, I didn't know to say that, <laughs> but, but I was, I was like, no, I just knew she didn't have black hair like me. Yeah. <laughs> or a small flat. Yeah. Hair. You're like, you don't look like me. You can't possibly like, be Chinese. Yeah, Chinese because my parents are always like you're Chinese it's beautiful it's wonderful so I knew what I was (laughs) but anyway so I just knew she wasn't Chinese and she's like yes I am I'm like no you're not and she said and she said yes I am because in the middle of China is an America China where all the Chinese people have blonde hair blue eyes (laughs) it was (laughs) it was the weirdest thing and I do remember going home to my parents and telling them but that was probably one of the first instances where just the physical stuff maybe kind of bothered me a little bit. Um, and then other than that, my parents, we would do um, Chinese new year each year. So we did have a community of other adoptees um, and that was always a lot of fun. We loved that. But again, it was just kind of mainly once a year. <laughs> and then my mom, she would like try to make my sister and I watch Chinese documentaries and things like that. So my sister, and I think that was good, but in the moment when we're younger and we're not asking about it, it's hard to know as a parent, I feel for parents. Cause it's hard to know, do I like initiate this or do I wait till they ask? Um, but my sister and I, we would like make fun of it, but I think it really was good. And we appreciate that. She did that in the moment. We're like, why do we have to watch this? This is so dumb. <laughs> yeah. I get yeah. that. I, I look back and think about some think about some of the things my parents did. And I think we took a lot of it for granted, Mm. but I think it was important. It was the little things like knowing what the traditional foods were. And, you know, um, I initiated wanting to go to Korean like culture school and wanting to learn more out of the three of us. I was the only one who did that, but um, I do. My best friend is also a Korean adoptee. And I don't think I, I know for sure I took that for granted. Like, I think that had such a huge piece of helping me feel like I belong. Cause there was just, you don't need a whole community necessarily. I didn't, I just needed like one other person. And if you were close to your sister, maybe she was that person for you or was, this friend yeah, from my church. Sister, and then our friend from Lindsay, it was like us three. Just, yeah. Yeah. And so I think we, even, went, we rode the same bus, we went to the same school in the same small group. So we, yeah. It's just enough think- to normalize your experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm how did you guys celebrate adoption? Like, did you guys celebrate like a family day or an airplane day or my mom didn't know that existed until this past year. So this past year, we, we like this past year and I'm 25 (laughs) with this past summer, we celebrated gotcha day. And I know some people don't use, use that term. It depends how people feel about it. We, so that was the first year we celebrated any sort of gotcha or family day. And it was great, but it's just so interesting because I'm a, um, adopted in 1996, there is such a difference of how people respond to their adoption. And I don't know, just with information coming out, 
those that were adopted in 2000s in the 2000s versus like the late 90s I don't know I just I find that it's different from the certain adoptees that I've talked to about it or not even more the parents I guess talking to the parents for instance but somewhere in the late 90s I think it was actually 1997 China started um, requiring you to post an ad when a baby was found so like you have your finding place and it's posted in an ad. Do you know about this? Maybe I'm like giving no, false information. Well, I think, well, I, I don't know about the year or that exact policy, but I feel like in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were a lot of practices changing and, and the ad gives Chinese adoptees more information, but it also, I think, was about best practice, like making sure that there wasn't somebody else, somebody out there in in China or who knew this child or who was an extended family member who could you know, do like a kinship adoption, or I think it's a, it's this push to recognize that changing cultures as beautiful as it can be. Cause I think it has been beautiful, at least in our family to really understand, you know, because we have Koreans and Ethiopians and Caucasians, like mm-hmm. understanding, you know, how beautiful it can be to learn about somebody else's culture in such close proximity, but there's also a lot of pain and hurt and grief, uh, you know, to have to move an entire different culture yeah. you know especially for older yeah. kids yeah. so so I I think sometimes I have struggled knowing like oh maybe if I was just born a year or two later and then adopted by my parents then maybe I would have this finding place ad that's in the paper and I could go back to at least the finding place you know because so I think the way adoptions have been done yeah they have changed a lot anyway bringing that all back to the the family day my mom grew up with raising my sister and I, they didn't, they didn't know of like post-adoption support services. They didn't know about just the little things you might do like family days. They didn't know that was even a thing or existed. And I think if they would have known, they would, they would have asked us if we wanted to do it. My mom has learned more from me working like in the past three years, working with adoptive families. That's how she's learned a lot. And she's like, I didn't know or else I would have done that. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah. I feel the same way with my mom. Like as we learned things like TBRI as a family and like different types of parenting because of adoption, my mom, same thing. She's like, there just, no one was talking about it. She was, you know, now I wish, you know, I had handled the three of you so much differently, but they only had traditional parenting, you know, as an as an option really. And so it is interesting, you know, being on the side, you know, I always tell her like, you did the best with what you knew, you know? Um, So is it just you and your sister or are there any other siblings? Just, yeah, just my sister and I, Mm -hmm. yeah, we're adopted from completely different parts of China. She was adopted in a foster care setting. Okay. And I was in an orphanage setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like you said, you have, you don't know the place where you were abandoned, you were in an orphanage setting. So very little information, I'm assuming about any kind of birth family or things like that. And I, same situation for me, I was abandoned as an infant on the steps of an orphanage, zero identifying information. Um, Do you think that's affected like your identity or do you ever wonder, or have you just not thought a whole lot about it? We're interrupting this interview to ask you to do us a favor. Really, it's not for us, but for adoptive and foster parents just like you. If you find our podcast helpful, pause this episode and revisit your podcast app where you can rate and review the show. Honestly, this isn't about making us feel good. This is about other parents finding confidence, hope, and friends who understand. Thanks so much for helping us get the word out. We really appreciate you. Now back to the conversation. Do you think that's affected like your identity or do you ever wonder or have you just not thought a whole lot about it? Oh, I think that's the part that affects me the most. Just of I've told friends this growing up and it hasn't changed when they ask me, do you want to meet your your real parents? Of course, that's like an insensitive way of saying it, but they don't know. <laughs> so and and I answer by saying, well, I want to see a picture of them or a video and hear their voice. 
and then decide to meet them. But like, I do want to meet them, but there's just this piece of just the little questions of, do I look like them? If I could see a video, I could have that answered. If does my mom sing, if I could hear her singing voice, I could hear if it sounds like my singing voice. Yeah. Do I look like mom or dad more? Like what? So it's more just the, just the simple questions that I don't have the answers to that other kids will have when they're born by birth. Um, I often wonder about, which could easily be answered just by seeing a video of them or hearing their voice. Um, But I do want to meet them, which again is why when I've tried to think about doing some sort of search at all, I'm like, oh, it's so hard, especially for like my age because of, yeah, just the, how the policies changed. There wasn't anything really in the nineties. Fast forward as you're growing up, um, we have a lot of parents who listen to the podcast who are parenting adopted teens, whether they came to their families Mm -hmm. as younger kids and are now teens, or maybe they adopted older kids. What was your teenagehood like? And how do you (laughs) think it was impacted by being an adoptee? Or was it just like, would you identify it as just kind of standard? Like I was just figuring out who I was like kind of standard teenage stuff or do you think you're you know all of those questions and wonderings and identity things played into it I could go in so many different directions with this but I think the and when I've worked with families I've seen this true for myself it's been like a, a bunch of aha moments but that whole aspect of your adoption will confront you differently at different developmental stages I think is so true especially for myself and how it confronted me as a teen which again the teenage years, plus your adoption experience, plus just whatever is happening in your life at that time, it all plays a role. So it's not just because of the adoption. It's not just because you're going through puberty. It's all of it combined. Anyway, so for my teen years, they were really hard. And then looking back and talking and processing it with my family, like, oh, that's why it was hard. Not just the only reason, but during that time, seventh grade to 10th grade, My dad left the church job, which was when you leave a church as a pastor's kid, I guess that's like your life. It's like your family. Yeah. It's your family. It's your home. Cause we lived in a parsonage. It's your resource community. Just, yeah. So we left that. I started high school, public high school from private Christian school. So like a class of 15 kids to like public high school. My grandma, who was very close to our family, my mom's mom, she passed away from pancreatic cancer. Yeah. Just all of that happened in those years. And that's when I started sneaking out. I don't know who's going to listen to this podcast, but people might not know this stuff about me, but I started acting out more and, and sneaking out or having secret relationships. And I got it. Some of that got to the point where I almost got where I was hurt. Like it was just dangerous situations. And so and then I see families I work with have these behaviors with their kids and they, and they don't know what to do. And I can just relate so much to the kid. I can't relate to the parent as much, <laughs> but knowing how I felt at that time, I had this life, I would call it my life motto. It wasn't a good motto, but I constantly said it to my mom in those years of seventh to 10th grade. You don't understand me. No one gets me. Those were like my two things. Yeah you don't understand. No one gets me. And I think those two phrases, I was like, that was my cry for help because I didn't understand myself and I didn't get myself. It was like everything I would project to my parents was kind of, was actually how I felt about myself. Um, And then of course, being a mom, my mom, and then my dad being a seven, not knowing how to handle hard emotions always trying to put a positive spin on things. And then my mom is one. They were like, how do we fix this? Let's like, like, okay. So I would say, you don't understand me. And they would say, help me understand. (laughs) Like that was always the exchange. (laughs) Like I want to understand, help me understand. But uh, the reason I was saying you don't understand me is because I didn't understand myself. (laughs) So we just went, that was the cycle. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I think that, that, brings so much insight to parents who are out there struggling is we, we want our kids to tell us something, like to throw us a bone, you know, tell us something that's going to help. And I, I'm the same way in the sense that when I work with families, like I remember things about 
more like my younger childhood self, like my trigger was chores. Like I remember Mm. throwing rages as like a seven and 10 year old, like about having to clean my room and, and just feeling lost and overwhelmed. And of course my parents, same thing. Like they didn't know how to come alongside me or help me understand why that was hard. They would just be like, this isn't hard. I don't understand why you're having such a big deal. Like it's a tiny room. You just need to clean it up. Like go to your room until you can figure it out. Right. And so I was like kind of on my own to, to, to regulate myself into all of those things. And, um, and they didn't know any better. So this is not to like, you know, like, you know, I have a great relationship with my parents now, but it's so interesting to think about that. Um, and I, and as an adoptive parent now myself, like I empathize on both situations. I'm like, I get it. Like I want my kids to clean their room too. But then I have this like piece of myself. That's like my inner child. That's like, you hated that as a kid. Like, how could you ever, you know, (laughs) make your kid do that? (laughs) So, um, so what, I mean, what do you think, would have been the most helpful response from your parents looking back? Like, was there anything that they could have done differently? Was, I mean, do we just need to tell parents like, write it out? Like, this is just a season of life. Like, what is that thing, you know, now that you're on the other side? Oh, I could go in so many directions with this too. (laughs) My dad being a seven, he would have this tendency of getting to the point where he just had to go for a walk and, and walk away. And, and that would communicate to me, Oh, he's leaving me, but I don't necessarily. So I would want to say, yeah, he, he should have stayed. He should have like sat through those hard moments and stayed with me. Like my mom would and stay sitting next to me, even though I was just spewing out words, like, like really nasty, mean bratty stuff. I would say like, he should have stayed, but then I look at it from the perspective of, what I was doing and what I think other teens might do is they push and sabotage so hard to affirm this belief that they have in their mind. So, and I saw myself doing this with my parents. I've seen myself do this in like romantic relationships I've been in where I push, push, push. So like take guys, for instance, I push, push, push. I mean, so I'm charming, whatever. They want to get to know me. We date. (laughs) And then, and then I will start sabotaging the relationship and that could look like different things. Um, And then, but then I would never be the one to break up officially. It would just, I would just push until they break up and then it like communicates. And then it affirms my belief that I've had of myself, which is no one wants to be with me or they don't want me. But like, I've pushed it to that point. So anyway, so I've, I've done that sabotaging through my, with my parents too. It's always the closest people to me that I treat the worst. And then my now husband, he's, he's stayed in it. And of course that with my, with my current, with Jared, my husband, of course, I'm started maturing too, like in my twenties, but I still did some sabotaging and he stayed there and he like, Anyway, so he stayed, but with my parents and what we're talking about right now, my dad, it was his way of handling. And I know like his, it was his, he felt like in that moment, that was the best thing for him to do instead of staying there and saying something he regret or me seeing him rage in some way. And he's really, he's not an angry guy, but when he gets pushed and so much emotion, he doesn't know how to, what to do. So he'd go on a walk. Um, so Part of me wants to say maybe he could stay, but then I know like he needs to take care of himself too. So it's hard. So I don't know really exactly what to tell parents, but maybe parents just to know that them staying and being present, even if they're not saying, saying anything is combating this negative internal self view. Yeah. I think that's so important. So I, parents are probably dying to know, like, how did you go from an angry teenager who was sabotaging relationships to having so much insight about <laughs> how, what that even was, right? You're talking about it and saying like, in the moment, I think I needed him to stay, but also understanding why it was so important for him to sure. take care of himself. And that's so insightful, so mature. Um, so what did that look like? You know, how did your parents help you if it was, you know, partially what they kind of made you do or, you know, or was it just 
time and age? Like, Mm -hmm. how do you come to the other side of that? Well, I think throughout the teen years, even if my parents didn't know, okay, this is because of her trauma or this might be trauma based or, or they didn't know. But when I like the one time that I did sneak out and it became a really unsafe situation and I got hurt instead of, and I got caught, I was like, oh, it's like the most, the worst day of my life. I felt like I was going to get kicked on the streets. They were going to like, I just felt so much shame, which is also really common for unhealthy twos anyway. So, but instead through that situation, my parents took me in, took the guy in that hurt me, prayed for him and just told him never to talk to me again (laughs) or else then they would like press charges, you know, but then for me, they forgave me. And I guess, and, and so we're Christian, where I come from a Christian family. And so that that was the first experience of grace that I felt in a real way anyway. And so through that, that, so honestly, for me, I would say God's grace, but I know, so that's just what I believe personally, that's been like a huge thing in my life. But as through moments of where my, when I thought I was going to get in trouble by my parents or be, or be shamed by them, they continually didn't shame me. And they just, we'll figure this out together. They, so honest, like my parents were like a huge role in how they just rode the wave or stuck it out, even though they probably felt so like, what do we do? And there was a point they didn't know what to do. So they did what they thought was best, which was to send me to a, a a Christian counselor, (laughs) which is fine, but they didn't, they didn't know. And then, but then this past in 2019 was the first time I found a therapist that was very trauma-based Um, and someone that liked working with young adult adoptees. And that was huge. So that was the first time therapy really dug at the core and helped me. So all that to say the last three years, four years has been really the time I've done the most hard work. And within those last four years, that's when Jared and I started getting serious, decided to get engaged. That's when I started, um, an internship at adoption and foster care agency, Bethany Christian services. That's where, so I was just, everything about my life was being more immersed into the adoption and trauma informed world. And then, like I said, adoption confronts you differently as you get older. It was in the past four years, it's been confronting me. Like now that I'm older and I'm married, I'm like, Oh, I want to be a mom someday. Maybe it's confronting me differently in a way it didn't before seeing, trying to see things more, maybe through a parent perspective or as I'm like forcing myself to be in these other life's developmental life stage things of adult life, I guess. Yeah. Adulting. (laughs) adulting. It's, It's kind of forcing me though, to see my adoption in a different way, but I don't want parents to think I don't struggle anymore because I do. And I, and I do want to share that real quick. Currently, <laughs> I just told some family this at a workshop for an adoption camp a couple of weeks ago. And I told them true, I, at least I think true vulnerability is when you can talk about something that you haven't figured out yet, mm. because we can always talk about something that we went through. I'm like, not ashamed to talk about me sneaking out in high school. <laughs> like I could give you more details if appropriate, if someone wanted to hear them, but because that's been dealt with and that's figured out. And the, but with something that, I don't know when you're talking about something and you don't really have answers. So I kind of, I'll share this with you. Maybe you could give me some insight. Maybe the listeners could give insight, (laughs) but um, what I struggle with now. So my husband and I moved in May. So it's been a few months now. um, And that's the first time I've moved out from under my parents' home. So like, if people believe in leaving Cleve, this is like the time that I've been needing to put all of my emotional needs, um, trusting my husband kind of with them and being my co-regulator, I guess, instead of my mom. And I've loved, we love living apart from my parents. We're like in this nice apartment. We love it. We feel so blessed. But then we, whenever I go back to my parents' house and spend time with them, I get so dysregulated and I don't know why it's like, I have this, it's like my new Sarah, adult Sarah can't reconcile with like high school Sarah. Like when I go back into my home 
Yeah. With my parent, it is so weird. And I get dysregulated and I call it high school, Sarah, but she starts coming out, um, saying bratty things to my parents, but I get so excited to go see them. So we'll have dinner maybe like once every couple of weeks. And when I'm getting ready to go, I'm like, so excited <laughs> and I'll like bring a dish or whatever. <laughs> and then once I get there and the first 20 minutes is fine, but then I start getting dysregulated and over sensory loaded people chewing, eating. It is just the weirdest thing. And, and then it just makes me feel like, have I really improved? Like, why am I feeling like so irritable by this? And like, okay, we just need to leave Bye. Like, it's just really weird. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. We have a daughter who hasn't lived with us for a long time and she struggles to have, so she's um, been in like a long-term respite situation Mm -hmm. and she struggles to have all of us in the same room at the same time because she can't reconcile like, um, like both attachment relationships. Cause I, they've both become attachment relationships. Um, and also there's been this anxiety a little bit on both sides of the fence. I think more on hers about even her coming to visit because she's been so stable there mm-hmm. and we have always gone and visited her in that space. Mm. But I think there's a lot, again, like I, our body remembers, right? Like, so yeah. there's like this muscle memory. And I think there's this fear about her coming back into the physical space of our house because there's so many years of really hard in that. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I think that's really interesting and really, um, again, insightful for you to notice that. Um, I talk a lot here on the podcast about body work and you know it's interesting you talked about your adoption confronting you in different like seasons different times and I can relate to that a ton and I think there's things about my adoption that confronted me that didn't confront me until I was not just a parent but an adoptive parent with kids Mm -hmm. with attachment issues right like there's all these layers and I, I think the other thing parents should hear is you know going to therapy or counseling for adoption and trauma related issues also wasn't a thing when I was a teenager. Right. And so I was adopted even like, you know, 12 years before you or even more actually. And so, you know, that wasn't a thing. So I like, it took me until my thirties to really start processing some of that and like, and again, and still processing it and finally getting in, you know, you know, have a relationship with a therapist and I have done a lot of, of body work. Um, Hmm. And I think because as a seven, I don't want to talk about the hard. It's been like, when I first realized I needed to, I was like, I knew I needed to. And I was like, but I don't want to. So it was like, find any other way to, to help me besides having to talk about it. So I turned to things like the safe and sound protocol and trauma release exercise, um, which we've talked about on the podcast. If you're listening to this and you will link to those in the show notes, Um, And that I think has helped me, I've noticed like I'm more mentally, like cognitively able and willing now to explore some of those things about my adoption. Like I even reached out to my therapist recently and was like, I've always been afraid to take the adult attachment interview because I've always been afraid about like what it would tell me. But now I'm like curious, like I'm ready. So so yeah. So I think for parents listening to know, like Sarah's in her 20s, I'm in my 30s, almost 40s. you know, and we're still working through these things and figuring Mm -hmm. these things out. And, um, and I know as a mom, like I'm looking at my 14 year old, my 18 year old, my 20 year old, you know, and I'm like, really like, I want to force them to go to therapy. I want them to figure these things out. Um, Mm -hmm. but sometimes we're just not ready until a different season of life or until we have more prefrontal cortex development, like all these things, you know, it might take our kids until they're in their adulthood to figure these things out. And so, you know, what is our role as parents to just keep, you know, be the safe place, be Mm. the people that don't leave, not necessarily be the fixers and let time play out, which is tricky, right? Because if your kid's thinking out of doing something dangerous, like there's obviously a role there, like you want them to live, to be able to be in their (laughs) twenties and thirties and process all of these things. Um, but you know, I think we feel this urgency to have our kids figure things out. Mm-hmm. sooner. And, um, and I just, 
I just don't think it can be rushed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think parents had, depending on their situation of why they adopted, they, they have to go through their own like grief and loss in a sense of what they expected life to be like when they were going to be a parent or have a kid. If they, if they originally thought we we're going to have kids by birth, which is what my parents did. They, they thought my mom wanted to be a mom since she was a kid. And I guess, and then she probably always assumed, you don't assume you're going to have struggles to right. have a child, you know? And so she probably had to go through her own little grief and loss, realigning her expectations of how, how my sister and I would develop and maybe what direction we would choose to go in, in life, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you have come like fully full circle. You already alluded to it a little bit. You're mm-hmm. um, a social work major. You did an internship with Bethany and now you're doing all kinds of things. But one of the things you're doing is here at the Adoption Connection is helping um, head up a small group of teens. Mm-hmm. So when this podcast airs, we'll either be in the middle of that session or it'll be just wrapping up. And it's something we're hoping to be able to continue with. And then you also work with teens individually just as a mentor and coach. And yeah. um, and so do you want to talk just a little bit about why that's so important to you? Yeah. So I can just, I can just explain it a little bit. Um, and then I want to share the heart behind it too, but basically, um, it's called core of adoption. Um, I had done in my past work with adoptive families, I had started doing one-on-one mentoring as part of their case management service. I had started doing that with teen girls. We found that to be just really helpful for them. It was, it was in a non-traditional type of therapy setting. It would be me going to their house, taking a walk with them, talking to them, um, sharing my story because that that helps them open up too. Um, but it was just forming this ongoing relationship um, and safe space for them to talk about their adoption and to have a, I guess their parents thought I was a positive influence. No, I'm just kidding. Um, have someone, someone that has kind of gone through similar things, but maybe in a couple life stages ahead of them, which is what I think is helpful with with mentoring. Um, so I kind of took that idea and ran with it to do this coaching service and make this coaching program. I called it core of adoption. Um, it's capital C O R E and each, um, it's like a six month program theoretically, but it can be like tailored to each person depending on their needs. But each step of the process is one of the letters of core. So C would be connecting, Um, me connecting, building that rapport with them. O would be opening. We're going to do like self-exploration, maybe some Enneagram stuff. Um, Oh no, I'm sorry. Opening, (laughs) opening would be them sharing their story their way in a, in however they want to share it through art, through verbal written. Um, And then R would be recognizing, which is that self-awareness piece. Um, And then E would be engaging. And that's really the practical tools of how are your relationships right now with your parents, with your friends? What do you want them to look like? How can we get them to that point? Because um, relationships are hard, but the heart behind core is the fact that relationships are so important and we were created to be in relationship. And I, and I think like as a believer, I was really excited to make core this faith-based platform. I don't, I, I'll serve anyone, but my heart behind it is really that we were created to be in relationship and our broken relationship with God, that's a severed attachment. The only way to heal that relationship was for Jesus to come in and for us to have a relationship with him. Because I think the only way to heal a relationship is through another relationship. And so knowing that, I just think that's huge for adopted parents, not to say they're Jesus, but in that kind of gospel centered perspective, knowing that they can be the key to heal that broken relationship between the birth parent and the child. I think that's huge. Um, And so that's kind of my heart behind it. It's not, it's not, um, I'll take the child where uh, the child, I'll take the teen where they're at, where um, it's not a behavior modification thing either. And I wouldn't consider it therapy, but this program is really to dive into how they want to tell their story their way build um, this relationship and hear perspective from me as an older adoptee, and then also um, um, grow in their own self-awareness, which will hopefully impact their behavior and also their relationships with others. 
Yeah. I think that's amazing. <clears throat> and, and it's so fun for me when like brain science backs up what, you know, what you and I believe to be true about how yes. God made us. Yes. And, um, I love it. <laughs> I know. And Bruce Perry and Oprah's new book, what happened to you talks about that. Like they talk about how connection helps people overcome adversity um, and just their experience they've had. And so I just think that's, that's brilliant. And the parallel of just, you know, a, a safe, healthy relationship can help repair the hurt of another broken relationship is huge. So thank you so much for being yes. so vulnerable, for sharing your story, for being here. We love to hear all the different voices of experience in the adoption triad. And um, I just think this is going to be a super helpful conversation to parents who are out there, no matter what stage of parenting they're in. And so just thank you for being here. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks so much, Melissa. I listened really intently to Sarah's interview because for me, it was just kind of fascinating to get a glimpse into a young adult's mind about her own experience of being an adoptee and growing up in a white family and all those kinds of things. I mean, you and I talk about it all the time, Melissa, but I just, I don't know. I just loved hearing her story. And I think a couple things really stood out to me. One was I appreciated her willingness to be honest about her struggles as a teen that she struggled. I mean, she was not easy for her parents to parent and she didn't really feel awesome inside herself either. And like when she talked about how she would say to her parents, you don't understand me, but the truth was they probably didn't, but also that deep within herself, she didn't understand herself either. Did you find that kind of a powerful um, reflection? Yeah, I did. I thought what a gift to have someone who has done so much work on her story that she can tell about the hard and give insights and that type of insight that I think is helpful to adoptive families listening. Um, I think that's so true when I look at my story and I look at my siblings and I look at families that we work with here at the adoption connection, it's so easy to get caught up in those words um, to say what her parents said, like help us understand, like tell us what to do. And, and I think sometimes we just need to be present to big emotions. And that's really, really hard. I mean, I'm such a thinking fix it person. So I'm really learning a lot about this raising young adults because, you know, they kind of need to learn how to figure some of these things out for themselves. They just need support. They don't always need someone to fix it. So that's my like note to myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I find it really hard to let my kids experience really difficult things. Like I, I'm the same. I want to fix it. I don't want them to be in pain. One of my young adult kids just this a couple days ago called and was processing something really, really hard. And it took everything in me to just be present, be empathetic, listen, give encouraging words, because I had a whole bunch of ideas how to fix this problem. <laughs> but I knew that was not what was needed. So yes, I appreciated that. Another thing she said, or just talked about in general that I found that was really helpful, was that adoption kind of has confronted her over and over in her life at different stages of development. And I think different life moments will bring these big things up, especially things that are um, entwined with grief and loss. So like in my own experience, I definitely have had to process losing my son to adoption, which is a whole other story when I was a young teen, but that loss has come up many times throughout my life. And I've had to reprocess that grief. And it's, I, I don't think these, losses ever just disappear. They're never, it's not like we can ever do enough work that they're just erased. You know, how we cope with them change and how we reflect on our losses change, but it doesn't ever disappear. It, it continues to resurface. And so our kids who are adopted are going to process it one way when they're little children and again, when they're teens and then when they get married and then when they have their own children, you know, this, if they have health problems, it's going to resurface and they're going to have to work through it again. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about that? Uh, you and I just both finished reading uh, Dr. Bruce Perry's new book that he wrote with Oprah Winfrey called What Happened to You. And he talks about a concept that I've heard him talk about on a couple other podcasts, which is dosing, like this idea of our nervous system 
can do hard things, but kind of in appropriate doses. And so I, I feel like there's a theme here too. Like, I think sometimes we send our kids to, you know, therapy and we're thinking like, heal them, fix them, get them to a stage where, you know, it's not so chaotic. It's not so hard. And I mean, I think there's, there are places where we can get to more stability in our families, but this idea that intense work sometimes needs to happen in little bits over time. And sometimes we want to just, you know, if a little bit of therapy is good, then a lot of therapy must be even better. And I'm not sure that that's always the case. And so I think this idea of um, our adoption stories confronting us at different stages is really helpful to know that we have, you know, a lifetime to kind of work through these things. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, lastly, I just want to say, I'm just so really, really happy that she's on our team and she's going to be serving adoptees. We, we so value every member of the triad, you know, we value the birth families and adoptive families and parents and kids and just rounding out our team with Greg and Sarah. is just brings me a lot of joy. Yeah. We're really excited about the work. Both of them are helping us do. So if you would like to connect with Sarah and find out more about how she's supporting teen adoptees, you can find her on Instagram at core.ofadoption. And all the other things that we talked about throughout the episode will be linked in the show notes. And you can get to those at theadoptionconnection.com slash 148. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Instagram as The Adoption Connection, or better yet, join our free Facebook community at theadoptionconnection.com slash Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. And remember, you're a good parent doing good work. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.